Good. Happy summer. It's pouring out here. Is it really? Yes. It pouring. is really humid where uh-huh. we are, but no rain yet. Um, well... But it feels like summer, finally. It finally feels like summer. I've been freezing for a couple of days, so I've, ha- I've been over it. I am, uh, I am freezing, as you can tell by my turtleneck. It is Are cold. you? Do you run cold? You run cold, Ellen, like me? Are you joking? I am always cold. It's like, oh, it's like, it's what, you such need a sleeping joke. socks. I'm, you need sleeping It's a socks. joke on, I think not. Everyone always makes fun of me because I'm so cold. Because one time, uh-huh. this is, this is what happens on a podcast. You say something one time and you are held to that because I said, well, you know, because like, I'm really like small and I get cold and that, oh man, I have been paying for it. Everyone's like, oh, are you so tiny? Are you so cold? Yes, I am always cold. I, I don't am know. always cold. I am always cold. Even, I mean, like, no amount of back fat is protecting me, so I don't know. And, <clears throat> and you're disappearing right in front of my eyes, so. No, I'm looking pretty much the same. But anyway, um, sleeping socks uh, for all of us everywhere. That's how it's going <laughs> to go now. Um, but, yeah, it is summer and you're wearing a turtleneck. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. That's concerning. <laughs> um, I'm ex- so, so excited about today's episode. I am excited and confused and perplexed, and I have been giving our guests shit about it for a couple. We can blame of, her. Yeah, I was we like, can blame "What? Her. She oh it. my gosh, this case! Oh my gosh, it's got no solution." Listen, this is the case that, like, it's it's when people hear what it what it is, y'all have heard. You've, you've all heard about the case, but I, I didn't know a lot of the details. All I knew was like, this is re- a really famous unsolved cold case. And, and we know it by it's like this, this moniker, right? That's not even like the name of the actual victim. Some would argue it is the most perplexing unsolved case of like for forever. I mean, it's kind the of past like century. one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, probably. All right. So should we introduce our guest? Go for it. All right. Uh, yeah. Let me do the introduction because she's my friend. Maybe you'll be friends with her one day too, Ellen, if you're lucky. I hope she'll be my friend. Yeah. I hope so too. <laughs> All right. We have on the show, not just my friend, but a friend of the podcast and folks who watch us on Instagram and who have listened to us on Patreon, like she's been on before. I mean, in different ways, but not as a guest, not as a primary guest. So I'm very excited to welcome this week, Sarah Kalin. Hi, Sarah. Hi, guys. How are you? Sarah, I'm so excited that you're here, mostly because I love listening to you talk, and I feel like I can just lean back, and I can just be like, go, take it away, Sarah. You know more than probably Robbie and I put together, and I'm so excited about that. Well, and that and I just talk too much. Um, and <laughs> no, I, never. I, I've heard, oh, I've heard that. My entire life, every report card I ever got was just a joy to having class. Talks too much. Works really hard. Talks too much. So, I did. I did you know. leave Sarah a message this morning on WhatsApp saying your voice note took me three days and eighteen attempts to get through because it was that long. But anyway, Sarah, um, do you have ADHD? <laughs> I do, and I'm on the autism spectrum as well. And so I'm, you know, I'm pretty good at reading the room. But every once in a while, actually, not every once in a while, like I interrupt constantly. I'm almost fifty, and this is something I'm still like. I promise, I'm still working on this. No, um, but it's um, I've never noticed except for on WhatsApp. Um. Um, <laughs> I will. I would just like to give a shout out to all our friends out there who are listening that got a report card that says talks too much in class. What up? Talks too much in class. <laughs> mm, mm. And, and like you, Ellen. I, One of these I, things is not like the other. Yeah, <laughs> well, it's not me. Yeah. 
No. Well, I went into theater before I did any of this other stuff. So I was a theater kid like like you, Ellen. So well, let I, me tell let me tell our listeners some of the other stuff that you've done. Or the stuff you've the, why I even know you, frankly. And then then we'd love to talk. I want I want to talk about the theater stuff too. So for folks who are not in the know, um, Sarah is a former law enforcement officer turned cold case investigator. And I first connected with Sarah a few years ago when I was investigating a case for undisclosed. And um, I I literally it was. It was a kind of a cold call. I was like, hey, you want to work this case with me? And she's like, yep. We met up and we spent days in a car together driving around looking for witnesses. I mean, like, but her investigative instinct ever since then, I have gone back to Sarah over and over um, to talk. And, and and we've got some other stuff we want to do together. We always have cases we want to look at. Um, and of course, you know, I, I was doing a wrongful conviction, but the flip side of the wrongful conviction is that means there's an unsolved murder. So it's a cold case, right? But What's actually even more exciting right now is the fact that uh, Sarah comes to us at a time when she is not just a cold case investigator, she is the host and co-producer of a chart-topping true crime podcast called Why Can't We Talk About Amanda's Mom? How long have you been on the top of the chart, Sarah? I know you know this. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, you know, we were really fortunate to to get some some early traction. The the show launched February twenty second. Um, it was eight weeks, you know, one episode a week for for eight episodes, and we kind of, you know, after about week three, we sort of started noticing that we were in like top five, top 10 of true crime. We were, you know, pretty consistently doing well in the, in like the top 20, 25 of all podcasts. And we, I'm going to end up having to shout out another podcast here, guys. I'm, I apologize. But um, we, you know, we started, we just started to kind of dip out of the charts. But you were also topping not just the true crime charts. You were topping the regular charts. We were, yeah, we were doing really well. We were very lucky. It was, it was primarily word of mouth. It was definitely, um, Robbie and Ellen, you guys have been so generous with, with talking about it on your Facebook group and stuff. And I've, I've been really excited to interact with people on there. Um, and then, a couple of days ago, um, Georgia Hardstark uh, mentioned the podcast and did a post about it on um, on Instagram as well. And so I I woke up one night or one morning to see that we had uh, shot back into the Yay. into the top ten again. Yeah, so we're That's feeling so really lucky and and mostly I'm just excited to have people hear it. I know it sounds crazy, but it's an almost 30 year old case. And we're, you know, we're still getting tips. This is an active investigation. And the more traction we have, and the more ears we have on it, um, the, you know, the more we're able to do with with what we have in the field. I would also just like to say, it's funny that you I'm gonna, I'm gonna correct you, but I'm gonna say I understand. Because there is an element to luck in podcasting. It's getting, you know, the right ears and everything, but it really is more than luck. It's your, it is your work, your hard work, your, your persona, your intelligence. So I will let you have a little bit of luck, but you also have to take some of that credit for yourself because you. luck can only take I you so I thought the same far. thing. Yeah. yeah. But it's so funny because that is something I would say too. But when I hear other people say it, I'm like, no, no, you deserve that. That's, that's not luck. Don't give the universe credit for that shit. <laughs> well, you know? that's, that's very kind. I do appreciate that. It was, I mean, we're really proud of it. Um, the team at Discovery ID and the team at Arc Media who produced it. Um, we're, we're really proud of it. We worked really hard. It was a very small team. This was a like skeleton crew on a shoestring budget. And so we are really proud of what we were able to, to say about this case and maybe 
more to the point what it says about these types of case in 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 like a broader a broader context and um that's one of the reasons i picked the case that i did for this episode we are definitely going to talk about the similarities between this (laughs) case and your case i just want to say when i first met sarah the very first time i met sarah and she told me she told me i've been working on this case for a number of years completely like for zero money pro bono i'm paying out of pocket to do the work hoping i can it can actually get to air get some media around it get some attention to help solve this cold case and i was just so uh incredibly impressed and um so happy to see that all come to fruition in the last year also you think um, my favorite murder gave you a bump? Wait till Robbie and Ellen's bump. That's right, right. Ellen? I, well, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. I when you when I saw you guys up on the Times Square billboard, I was so excited and also so envious. So I uh, I'm I'm very grateful for any reach that you guys could give me. Yeah, I think everyone is really excited. I think that all of our guests have been so different in so many different ways. And I think people have really been wanting to have someone in law enforcement. And you're that perfect combination of law enforcement and entertainment. So I think you're the perfect Venn diagram for our demographic. I I appreciate that. I was watching an old episode of Saturday Night Live earlier. It was uh, Gerard Carmichael's episode. And he, right in his opening monologue, you know, he's like, I am the least famous person to ever do SNL. And I felt the same way. I was like, me too. I am the least famous person to ever do Robbie and Ellen. So I feel like I'm in good company with with Gerard Carmichael. But there. (laughs) Most of the time, Robbie and Ellen are the least uh, famous people on the show. So it's okay. Sarah, yeah, join pretty us. much. I'm, I'm, I'm like a distant fourth. But so before we jump into the case, you know our little game that we play, and that's called basic oh, things. Yep. And it could be about anything. Sometimes you, you never know what's going to come out of my mouth. Mostly her mouth. God. You know, she is, she is a feisty one. You have to keep mm. your eye on her. Oh, All I right. know. <laughs> All right, Ravia, go ahead. Uh, you go first, Ellen, because I got to think about it. The thing is, a lot of questions that I have in my head, I'm like, I know the answer to that. So I can like, already know that. Yeah, I know. I know Sarah too well. Um, you go first, Ellen. Let me think. Okay. What is your biggest pet peeve in the true crime space? Hmm. Oh, I think um, I know the answer to this. <laughs> so, like, I, I think for the serious answer... Or, I mean, they're both serious answers, but the, you know, the most frustrating answer is there is an element of true crime that I think is very much just, um, it's like voyeurism true crime. And I understand there's an audience for that. That that frustrates me because I think that is the, the, the aspect of it that gives the entire genre a bad reputation. And the fact is, true crime as an overall genre has done tremendous good in the world. People don't realize that stuff mm-hmm. like the burning bed, which led directly to domestic violence law, was a true crime story. You know what I mean? Like, there's all these examples of it. Um, so the, you know, the voyeurism true crime gets a little frustrating. The thing, I swear to God, my biggest pet peeve, though, when I'm just watching, because I am an avid consumer is this business about not locking doors. We never locked our doors. I'm sorry. I call (laughs) bullshit on this. I do. I research so many historical cases for some some live speaking events that I do. And I'm constantly reading about like, oh, well, they knew it was an intruder because the doors were all locked from the outside. I'm like, people have always locked their doors. Mm -hmm. That one always drives me crazy. That's a good one. Uh, Yeah. I thought you were going to say about the... um... 
the description of every victim being exactly the same. Lighting yeah, she up a lit room. up a room. Yeah, <laughs> that, one's, room. that one's up there. That's your number one. That's probably my number two. Well, yeah, yeah. because I'm really, I mean, like, I think it's a little tacky, but in like the tacky corner of my content creation, I want to make one where they were like, you know, Sandy was great. She was, she was, gr- she was grumpy, but she was like a funny kind of grumpy. And you know, and her cooking was awful. Like nobody liked her cook. And just saying, all her plants of- died. Yeah, <laughs> yeah she, she always. Of- she had that sign up that said, please leave by nine. She was not yeah. the life of the party. You know? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. One time she told me I didn't have to go home, but I couldn't stay at her stay house. Here. Yeah. It was a little bit too much. Has that ever yeah. happened to you guys, by the way? Has that ever happened? I've had that happen to me once. What? Somebody asked you to leave a party? Well, yeah. The, the husband was like, well, y'all don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. And we're like, oh, oh okay, sorry. Time to get... <laughs> No. Yes. Oh, that's that. That's Ooh. almost never me. I am. I am a hundred percent like off the boat Irish, and so the Irish goodbye is like a very real thing for me. I'm just like, I'm Do out. Do you know that the Irish goodbye is actually um, a sign of compassion and like mm. and respect? Because I can see I re- that. I can see that. Yeah. I read this article because I love Irish goodbye because I get anxiety like saying goodbye to everyone. And I read that people who Irish goodbye don't center themselves in like the host's night. Well, and the host is usually like I, Rabia at your daughter's engagement party. I felt like this poor woman has enough to deal with right now. I'm going to pop over, give her a kiss and I'm going to leave. I don't, she doesn't need to worry. I have no recollection of you even leaving. Um, Exactly. That's exactly how it should be. I love an Irish goodbye. I love it. All right. So my question, um, my question is if you, I know you like to cook, Sarah, Mm -hmm. right? You cook, Mm -hmm. you do cook. I do. I do. Same. Oh, oh, is that right, Ellen? Oh, we all need to rent a house and cook for each other. That'd be fun. Oh gosh. Oh, I know Ellen's totally making that up. Um, oh, Ellen, no. Ellen cooks shark. <laughs> Ellen cooks charcuterie boards. She cooks cheese and crackers. There's nothing right. wrong with a good board. I had a whole board party. You were there, Rabia. Thank you, Sarah. I listen. I'm having I'm having a party in my house in a couple of days with a hundred people, and Ellen's like, "How much cheese and crackers you got to buy for a hundred people?" I'm like, That's "What is that? None." I am roasting entire legs of lamb. Okay. Yeah, she read me for filth over voice memo. I'm gonna start. I'm gonna start putting your voice memos up behind our Patreon wall so people can hear. Yeah, a lot of fun. All right, no. If you could cook a meal with one person in all of history, all of the world, cook a meal, not just hand, cook a meal. Who would it be? Oh my gosh! And so not, what meal? Not specifically a chef, but like oh, just. Any one person. Um, I got to go Jane Austen. Oh, interesting. Um, And I I think I would want to cook her something that she didn't have to eat all the time. So I would not want to have a bunch of like overcooked potatoes and meat. I would want. Are you making her pho? Are you making her pho, Sarah? Oh, no. That, that, I I only get pho from my, my very specific one. Uh, I'm going to shout out FA 75 on Washington Ave in Philadelphia. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I would want to do something. I would want to do something really special. I don't, I, I don't know what, but something very exotic, some, maybe FA, mm. I don't know. Something that, that she would not have gotten because the, the, the thing with Jane Austen, she was this incredible mind, this incredible young woman. She died fairly young. She, she lived this incredible life through her books and her characters lived these, these mm. incredible lives. She mostly was just sort of like stuck 
mostly in one place. She was single, you know, and I would love to not only be able to, to talk to her, but offer her um, some experiences of the world. Cause you know, when you read Sense and Sensibility and the way the youngest sister is obsessed with the maps and she's going to go here and she's going to go there and stuff. Uh-huh. I feel like that's a little bit of Jane and I would like to, to give her that gift cause she's given us so much. I love that answer. I do too. I'd make her kebabs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Dude, she'd probably love a kebab. I mean, she's yeah. British and it's all kebabs now. So yeah, I mean, just be, it would be time traveling. So, <laughs> all right. Well, I mean, so the third question, mm-hmm. Ellen, go, go for it. The third question is going to be kind of obvious for our mm-hmm. listeners, but yeah. the third question, but maybe not, is, maybe not, maybe, but maybe not. not. How does true crime fit into your life? Um, needless to say, I've thought about this a lot since (laughs) since you guys asked me to to come on. I've been like, okay, don't F this up. Um, the, the thing is, it has never not been a feature of my life. And I realized that a year or two ago, I saw something on like Twitter and it said, what was, what's the first like major news event that you remember happening, that you as a child were like hyper aware of this, this news event. And for me, I have two really, really strong memories. I was five years old for both of them. I, I, I'm sure Google can tell us which one happened first, but they happened in really close succession. And the first was the assassination attempt of Ronald Reagan. I was living mm-hmm. in Canada at the time, but I remember it being all over the news and I remember being really like blown away by it. Um, and then the second was the disappearance and then the ultimate recovery of, of Adam Walsh. And I remember mm-hmm. like, I, he's the same age I am. This could be a kid at my school. And it is sort of never left the, the, like the, the realm of fascinating for me ever since. Like I have, have consumed what is now kind of referred to as true crime voraciously since, since I was a kid. Adam Walsh. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, what was his dad's name? The, the John Walsh. Wa- John Walsh. Oh, I still see like that was just so tragic. But yeah. he did something. He did something so extraordinary. We have we have Nick with yeah, not just not just America's Most Wanted. We have Nick Mac because of John I mean, Walsh and Nick the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Oh, I didn't know that grew was out of the the Adam Walsh case, and and that's I mean it's an incredible organization that just does. Uh, uh, you know, untold heroics. Yeah. I'm always sending um, Sarah memes of like, you know, I relax by watching the murder. I mean, that is Sarah. And Sarah will drive from Philadelphia to come park on my couch and we will just, in our PJs, watch true crime together and then she'll go home the next day. Yep. We do slumber parties. I have moved a lot in my life and one of the toughest things about moving, and there's a lot of tough things, is having to find new doctors all over again for my entire family. New pediatricians, new OBGYNs, new internalists, new ENTs, you name it. It's so frustrating because you don't know where to start. So then you ask people and then you get some recommendations and then you call their offices and that takes forever. And guess what? They don't take your insurance or they're not taking new visitors or they can't see you for six months. Anyhow, you can dispense with all of that. And I did too when I discovered ZocDoc. 
ZocDoc is a free app where you can find amazing doctors and book your appointments online. We're talking about booking appointments with thousands of top-rated and patient-reviewed doctors and specialists. And you can filter specially for ones who take your insurance, are located near you, and treat almost any condition that you're searching for. These doctors all have verified reviews from actual real patients, not bots. And get this, the average wait time to see a doctor booked on ZocDoc is between just 24 and 48 hours. It's amazing. You can even score same-day appointments. Once you find the doctor you want, you can book them immediately with just a few app taps. No more waiting on hold with a receptionist. I know I'm never going to do that again. I've been using ZocDoc for a couple of years now, and that's exactly what I'm going to be doing for the foreseeable future. I only use ZocDoc now to book all my medical appointments for myself and my family, and you should too. Go to ZocDoc.com slash solve the case and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's ZocDoc.com slash solve the case. ZocDoc.com slash solve the case. I have to tell you, Rabia, Lumi is back. And every time I use it, I love the products more and more. Yeah, it's the only it's the only deodorant I will travel with because first of all, I can travel with it. It's not an aerosol, and you can use it like everywhere in your body. And it was started by an OBGYN, mm-hmm. a woman by the name of Dr. Shannon Klingman, because she met all these women that were concerned with odor down below the belt, and so they did all of this clinical testing. And turns out, ladies, it's not the vagina to blame; it's the bacteria on the skin. That's how she created Lumi, a skin-safe aluminum-free deodorant that actually works, and it works everywhere. I mean, I can't believe this is, it took this, we got a man on the moon, what, decades ago. It took this long to figure out, you need deodorant in more than just your armpits. I mean, yeah. Thank what you, daughter. About, uh, thank you, Dr. Klingman. What about your underboobs, your thigh folds, your belly button, your butt crack, mm. your vulva, your feet? You can put this yes. stuff anywhere and it smells delicious. Try the Thanks for the visuals, open. Ellen. <laughs> Thanks for the visuals. Yeah. <laughs> um. It's aluminum-free, baking soda-free, and paraben-free, and it's pH balanced, so yeah, you can use it down below. And it blocks the odor all day and controls it for up to 72 hours. Lumi Starter Pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, a cream tube deodorant, and two free products of your choice, like a mini body wash and deodorant wipes, and it's free shipping. I love the deodorant wipes. Mm-hmm. As a special offer for our listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi Starter Pack with code Solve the Case at lumideodorant.com. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit lumideodorant.com and use the code Solve the Case. You will love it, I promise. Sarah, why don't you tell our Solve the Case listeners what case you chose? The case that I chose is the unsolved murder of Elizabeth Short, uh, better known as the Black Dahlia murder. Mm. Yep. I've heard, I've always, I've just always heard of it. I've heard the black dye, the black dye, the black dye. I mean, I just never knew what it was about. Mm. And at what point did you kind of discover this case, Sarah? And how long have you, like, this been, like, on your radar? I mean, it's it's been on my radar as long as I can remember. Um, oh. I, I went into, like, pretty quickly when I decided to go into, I mean, the reason I decided to go into law enforcement, it was sort of backwards, was I wanted to 
go into work around sexual homicide, serial killers, stuff like that. I didn't really know what the context was for that. I didn't really know what that looked like in the mid 90s when I first started thinking like this is the work I want to do. Um, but I was devouring a lot of content at that time. And so I, I, I've been aware of the case. But um, in 2000, Lord, where are we at? 2019, uh, early 2019, when I first took on the murder of Renee Bergeron in Mobile, Alabama, which is the, the subject of Why Can't We Talk About Amanda's Mom, the very first time I laid eyes on the description and then the crime scene photos, my initial thought was this almost looks like a Dahlia copycat. Like there are so many similarities. And so, um, I, you know, I became even a little more interested with it then. Um, and, and then, you know, I, like I said, I do these sort of like speaking events around the country and people will always ask me like, what's the, the true crime case that you're obsessed with? And I never really had an answer. Mm -hmm. And then for one of my events, I was going to discuss this case fully obsessed ever since. Like once I started really reading up on it, I'm I, I'm I'm down that rabbit hole with everybody else. Well, this is really a rabbit hole because I feel mm -hmm. like in so many cases that we've covered, you can go pretty broad and you can talk about so many different things, but you could just not stop with this, with the yeah. amount of false confessions and suspects. I mean, they were basic. Everybody, anybody with a penis with a 20-mile radius was mm. a suspect. And, and, and some without. Some without. Yeah. There was a female who confessed to it. As well. Yeah, we'll get into all that, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah, <laughs> so I, I can see. When you say rabbit hole, this is probably yeah. one of the rabbitiest of all the holes. That is a technical term. You guys that can look it up That is a later. technical term. I know. I sent Robbie up all kinds of imagery for me. but uh, All kinds of imagery. I I, I sent Robbie the 900-page FBI files. I was like, here you go. Have fun. <laughs> so. Yeah. Uh, I didn't get through all of them. Let's just put no, it like that. No, no. Look, I haven't been through all of them, so it's okay. I think I went through the, the, the stuff that, that matters enough for this yeah. conversation. So, Ellen, should we tell our, our listeners all about it? Give them the, yeah. the, give them the crash course? We'll give you our crash course, and then we have so much to talk about. All right. Let's do this. I am from the generation that grew up with the nightly news. No round-the-clock cable news in my childhood. And I always remember being kind of, like, impressed, at the, at the risk of sounding weird, with the people whose deaths were reported every night. I thought they must be really important people to have the news report that they died. And I wondered if I'd ever be that important. But it wasn't until I was an adult that I realized, dear God, most of those stories are reported because the person died in a terrible way, in an accident, or as the victim of violent crime. Since that realization, I've always said a silent prayer that when it's time for me and my loved ones to go, it doesn't merit a news story. Unfortunately, the more horrific the circumstances of someone's demise, the more notorious the story becomes, and the longer it lingers in the public imagination. And when there's a mystery at the heart of the story, it adds even more intrigue, which is why today's case is one of the most infamous true crime stories of the past century, the Black Dahlia murder. The real name of the woman who became known worldwide as the Black Dahlia was Elizabeth Short. Her grisly murder in 1947 remains one of the most obsessed over cases of all time. Elizabeth Short was a native of Hyde Park, Massachusetts. 
who moved to Los Angeles in 1942 to reunite with her estranged father, a man that had abandoned Elizabeth and her mother and siblings when she was only six years old. He had so thoroughly disappeared, in fact, that the family and authorities thought he must have committed suicide after being financially ruined in the stock market crash of 1929. It wasn't until years later that Elizabeth's mother received a letter from him apologizing for leaving the family and admitting that he had just been fine the entire time and that he was living in Vallejo, California. A few months later, in January of 1943, Elizabeth moved to Vallejo to be with her father, but they didn't last long together. Within months, he had kicked her out and she found herself struggling on her own. Records show that Elizabeth then got a job at Camp Cook in Lompoc, California, and was living with a U.S. Air Force sergeant. According to what she told friends, the sergeant was abusive, and months later she moved out again. She bounced around a bit, going back home to Massachusetts and then to Florida, where she fell in love with a major who was killed in combat a week before the end of World War II. She returned to L.A. in July of 1946 in the hopes of being discovered and acting. Elizabeth had good reason to believe she could. She certainly had the looks that were all the vogue at the time. She had lily white skin and raven black hair and had begun dressing in all black, earning her the nickname Black Dahlia from her friends. The moniker was also inspired by the fact that one of Elizabeth's favorite movies was the 1946 noir murder mystery film, The Blue Dahlia. Little did Elizabeth know that she would soon herself become the center of a real life murder mystery. On the morning of January 15, 1947, a woman was taking a walk with her child on a road which ran past the L.A. Lehman Park neighborhood on one side and a vacant lot on the other. It was close to 11 a.m. when she came across a grisly scene. Laying right next to the sidewalk was a nude female body that had been neatly bisected in two precise pieces. The two sections of the body lay a couple of feet apart but were placed misaligned to make it clear to anyone looking that the body was not in one piece. The arms were raised above her head at a 90 degree angle and the victim's legs were splayed wide open. It was clear that the killer, or whoever left her there, had not just dumped the body. They had in fact carefully positioned it and left it out in plain view in order to be discovered. Eerily though, there was a mannequin-like appearance to the body because of the lack of blood. There was no blood anywhere not on the body and not on the area around it. The authorities arrived pretty quickly, within 10 minutes, but someone else arrived even sooner, reporters. By the time the police got there, reporters were already trampling all over the crime scene and taking dozens of pictures of the body. There are even pictures of the photographers taking pictures, literally right on top of her. These pictures aren't hard to find online, but buyer beware, they're graphic and gruesome. The photos show the brutality of the mutilation the victim endured. Chunks of flesh from her breasts, right thigh were carved out, long gashes extended the sides of her mouth into a macabre smile, and her head was full of bruising and gashes. The eventual autopsy report would reveal that she had been exsanguinated, drained of blood, and thoroughly washed. Her cause of death was a combination of hemorrhaging and shock, due to deep knife lacerations of the face and repeated blows by a heavy metal object to the face and head, and the medical examiner believed she had been dead less than 24 hours before she was found. 
From the minute reporters got to the crime scene before the police, the investigation was hampered. The Examiner, a large LA newspaper, seemed to be more plugged into the investigation than the authorities themselves. In fact, the police weren't able to identify the victim until the Examiner, which somehow got a hold of the victim's fingerprints, sent them to the FBI and got a match to Elizabeth Short. Once she was identified, the media very quickly dubbed the crime the Black Dahlia murder. The media was in deep on this case, covering it incessantly on the front page every day for months. Every step of the way, the examiner and the other news outlets had detailed information about what the investigators were up to, the suspects that emerged and dismissed, the many confessing Sams that came over, and yes, they reported all of them in real time. The examiner was in so deep that FBI memos show that the editor of the paper, who was getting information from the mayor, was in touch with the bureau to express his concern about local police incompetence. Not only that, it wasn't local authorities or the mayor that requested the FBI step in to help with the investigation. It was the examiner editor who did so. As egregious as the media's involvement was, the editor's concern may have been merited. Investigators were able to pinpoint and corroborate that Elizabeth was last seen alive on January 9th, six days before her body was found, when her boyfriend dropped her off at the Biltmore Hotel. But where she disappeared to after that, they had no clue. While hundreds of officers were involved in the investigation, over 2,700 reports were taken, over 300 named suspects, and dozens of false confessors wasted law enforcement's time and resources, it all ultimately amounted to nothing. Two years later, in 1949, an almost coerced confession by a suspect who then sued the city prompted a grand jury investigation. The grand jury convened with the purpose of holding the LAPD responsible for failing to solve Elizabeth Short's murder and the murders and disappearances of numerous other women in the 1940s, but it too ultimately amounted to nothing. No indictment, no accountability. And now, all these decades later, the Black Dahlia murder, the murder of Elizabeth Short, remains one of the most infamous cold cases in contemporary American history. So, let's talk about it. Oh, okay. Oh, boy. Um, I always feel like I don't breathe during the crash course. Yeah. Because <laughs> then I'm like, now okay. I'm like, uh, <sighs> yeah. Reading the script is a little, yeah, it's a little harder. Okay. Um, so I want to start off by talking to you, uh, Sarah, about, like you said, that when you started looking at this, like that's when you became obsessed. But why are people, why is this such a long, why does it have like, such a long, holds such a long memory in, in the American imagination? Why are people obsessed with it? I think part of it is the extent of the brutality. The simple fact is no matter how much um, we want to say that, that, you know, the voyeurism, true crime um, is problematic, there are elements of it that, that, that roll into to all media consumption of crime. And the worse the case, the more shocking the case, the bigger the impact it has on the public, right? So mm -hmm. when, we, when we see a victim treated the way Elizabeth was treated, her body destroyed the way it was, it really, really hits on our own, like our instinctual level, base level fears. And so we become obsessed because it's this, it's this feeling of like, could this happen to me? Was she like me? Could this, you know, mm -hmm. and and I think that that is a huge part of it, the brutality of, of the case in particular. I think part of it too, Rabia and I, you 
have, have talked about this a lot um, when we debate the question because we're both sort of publicly asked a lot, like, why are people fascinated with true crime, right? And so she and I have talked about this a lot. And one of the answers that Rabia gives that I think is really is really salient here is that it is such a crazy mystery that you can spend hours and hours and hours and never begin to scratch the surface. And the fact is, smart people like mysteries. We like to dig. We like to explore. We like to see if we can solve the question that hasn't been solved. I mean, when we look at, at um, uh, Zodiac, right? Who was it that first theoretically broke the cipher? It was a husband and wife at their kitchen mm-hmm. table who liked to do puzzles for fun. So like we all sort of think um, maybe I'll be the one to solve this. And I think that because this case has so many avenues and so many questions that that it really lends itself to that that obsession factor. I mean, mm-hmm. but you know, there. I think, but, but from the jump, I think the obsession might have been um, there, uh, obviously the brutality is like breathtaking in this case. I mean, like rarely do you see like this level of just like w- what was done to, um, Elizabeth, but from the jump, I also think there was like the, there was a lot of the rumors around who she was, a lot of judgment around who she might've been that also maybe fueled it. People love like a sex crime type of, th- you know what I mean? Like, I feel like that might've been it, the, you know? Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. One of one of the articles that you pulled, you know, was talking about the similarities, but, and I don't want to spoil anything, but the similarities between this and a series of murders in, in San Diego a few years earlier. And the fact is, even though we weren't calling it serial killers and Ted Bundy was, you know, a, a glimmer in somebody's eye or whatever, people have always been obsessed with what we now recognize as serial killers, this particular breed of monster. And so it, I think it's clear to anybody looking at this, like, eh, this probably wasn't a one-off. And I think that that, like you said, it's that um, it's that fascination with this particular type. Yeah, I I mean, this case really does encapsulate so many things in terms of the parts of true crime that we're obsessed with. We're obsessed with beauty, you know, and she was gorgeous. That was, you know, and of course, her autopsy said all these like awful things about her and her teeth and it was a lot of things in in and then it and then the media that's a whole other layer of the onion and then really the really i i don't i i would want to say gruesome that doesn't even seem like a uh and enough of a word to the way that she was left in terms of the way her body was you know posed she was posed yeah, she was her, presented she was posed and the blood being gone and i mean it just it seems like a movie really yeah, i was going to say yeah like a horror yeah. movie and something well that would never happen it seems I, like something that would never happen so that i think and i totally like rabia you said something really important and i completely failed to get all the way back around to it. And that is like the rumors that people had had said about her. And, and part of the reason that people will come up with these rumors is because they want to say, well, it couldn't happen to me. And that is part of that obsession too. It's like, well, I'm not like that. I'm not this, or I'm not that I'm not promiscuous. I'm not a sex worker. I'm not saying that, that, you know, that she, but like, that is the way that we distance ourselves when we see those, because we want to, 
reassure ourselves that it couldn't happen to us, that it's so horrific, but it couldn't happen to us. And that is a lot of what fuels that sort of rumor mill. I mean, in, in addition to just rampant misogyny that we generally um, yeah. seem to hate women um, and, you know, it's a tale as old as time. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's the it's the old, well, you know, I mean, you do this kind of stuff and you're inviting that kind of, I mean, you know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. risky behavior. But the thing about those rumors, and I remember when, we first, when you first kind of briefed me on the case, you're like, you know, all these rumors surrounding her, like, literally every single one was false. Like, yep. every single one was false. And it's shocking. But that takes me to something I want to talk about that's really important, I think, in a case like this, because I have listened to you talk about this stuff, but also there's a lot of misconceptions around this entire kind of field of investigative work, and that's victimology. Um, and I know um, some people hear that word and they think victim blaming. Right? right. So, Sarah, can you tell us a little bit of victimology? And then I want you to walk us through the victimology of Elizabeth Short. Okay, so um, I, I actually have sort of a rote answer. I'm going to read it. And um, and Josh, you can um, trim this down as you need. So victimology, <laughs> in its simplest terms, like when we speak of it academically, is the study of crime from the perspective of the victim's role in the event. And again, that is not to say their responsibility, but their role, just who they were in the equation, right? And when we speak Wait, of it... For, oh, for go ahead. Dumb, for the dumb people in the room, and I'm just raising my hand, the role in the event meaning like she went to that bar well or just who was she to the killer right got it what what is what is her role because really what we need to remember when we're talking about a hom- any homicide is that the action is the choice of the killer not the choice of the victim of, of course. course yeah and so when we talk about the victimology it's about understanding who that person was and then that can help you work backwards to understanding why that killer chose that person. Yeah. And, and then, and, and so it is the exact opposite of what people tend to think. Like they hear the word and they think this is terrible. You're talking about blaming the victim. And it's not just about what job did they do or who were they friends with or God forbid, what were they wearing? Are right? those things also victimology though? Like the they, people can, they, you know. they can be a part of it. Yeah. But really what you need to know is who was this person mm-hmm. who like, what kind of, what, what kind of things was she into? What kind of, um, what sort of trust level did she have with, with people that she met for the first time? Right. Stuff like this will help you understand how the killer targeted them, what, what, you know, what their MO was, how that fed their signature, all of these things. And, and you can only get there by really, really, really getting to know the victim. And that means getting to know the people around them because they're not there to speak for you. So it does mean stuff like reading diaries, if you can get them, but it means talk to their roommates, talk to their friends. Don't, don't ask them, don't just talk to them and say, um, what time did she come home the night before? Talk to them, like, what movies did she like to go see? What kind mm-hmm. of, you know, what was her favorite food? And all that did stuff. Did she lock her door at night? Did she lock her door at night? Did yeah. she, in fact, light up a room? Yeah. Um, right. You know, <laughs> um, y- y- you have to get to, to really know the victim. And then you can, from there, work backwards to get to, to understand who targets that victim. Mm-hmm. And why that victim was targeted. And sometimes it's deeply personal. The two of them knew each other. And the only way you're going to find that out, you know, if you have somebody, say they were a sex worker, right? Okay. 
But if you go at it from the aspect of, okay, I'm going to start with sex worker and go from there, you are only, you're going to look at drug dealers, you're going to look at pimps, you're going to look at this and that and everything. Okay, but sex workers have families and friends too. Mm-hmm. And sex workers have have lives outside their jobs like all the rest They've of us. They've got boyfriends and partners. They've got and boyfriends yeah. and partners and like who else were they interacting with? And if you don't yeah. bother to talk to the people who really knew them, you're never going to know that. And you're going to overlook, quite frankly, statistically, the people most likely to kill someone. Well, bringing it back to this case, though, that, again, was such an issue because she didn't have any family. She didn't have any, like, besties. She didn't have any roommates. She didn't have people that even noticed she was she was gone for six days or seven. She was she hadn't been seen for six days. Yeah. Not to say she was missing, but. Right. I, I would actually. So there is an element of that that is true, right? So she had moved around. A tr- she was basically couch surfing is the way we would think of it now. Which is so for funny several months. that's very common. That's, that's very, very common, common around performers. In your early 20s. Are you kidding yeah. me? Like who hasn't done that? But she did have people in her life. And there were. She had a good friend who specifically said to the police, you must look at this one man. And they wrote him off very quickly. Like mm-hmm. They were afraid for her from this one man, and they barely looked at him. She did have, I mean, her mother, when her mother came out to California to identify her body, she said, you know, she wrote to me like every couple of days when she was traveling. Like, she was very close with her family, you know, in, in, in a lot of, in a lot of aspects, she, she had this sister who lived in California who said she hadn't Mm -hmm. seen her in a couple of years. But don't we all, I mean, we all have family that we're closer to and family that, you know, that we're not as close with. And they just didn't, they just didn't really try. Yeah. And also it's just different time. You can't just text someone and, you know, if 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 somebody calls you from a payphone and you're not home, you miss that call. It's it's just a total different time. Yeah. Yeah. I know this show is called Robbie and Ellen Solve the Case, but in this episode, Sarah's going to solve the case because she's going to walk us through what she does as an investigator, which, which brings me back to how. What does victimology in Elizabeth Short's case look like, like through your eyes, through your analysis? And is this, is that part of like your presentation too that you do or no? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's a huge part of my presentation um, when I talk about this case. Um, Yeah, the, so Elizabeth Short was obviously, like we said, she's 22. Like everybody stop for a second and think about what you, Mm -hmm. like how you were behaving, how you were acting at 22. Exactly. Um, She had been in and out of love. She was like crazy about the pilot who was, who was killed in India. She was um, crazy about another military guy. She definitely seemed to have like military guy type, which was really common. You know, a man in uniform right around World War II. She, had had gone back and forth between California and uh, just outside Boston, like Rabia said. Um, but she she had also struggled with um, with breathing issues, with asthma, and with like pretty pretty severe respiratory issues. So she tended to favor a warmer climate because that's what doctors at the time said that you needed. I don't I don't know how much that really helps, but that's what mm-hmm. she was always told, and that was part of the you know she lived in Florida for a while, and and that was part of the reason that she had had moved out to California. Now we know victimology in terms of like her dad describing her is that he brought her out there under the agreement 
that she would cook and clean for him. Right. And and after three weeks, he was like, she didn't cook and she didn't clean. Okay, so you wanted a housemaid, not a daughter. She rebelled against that. And so you guys parted ways. Again, all of this makes like looks perfectly normal but in the in the lens of that time they're like oh she was a wild wild girl who's she won't dating cook and, and this and yeah. that she won't cook and clean but you can see in this constant like the the um the mother of the pilot who was killed who she was engaged to had expressed like some reservations about it. she almost seemed like wow this happened really fast this girl is a little gaga for him I, it's definitely, she's definitely in love with him, but like, my God, should these crazy kids get married? And I think we can see from that just, you can imagine we all had friends like that at 22 who were just I like, was that friend. I was that friend. I got married and, then. <laughs> yeah. And like, we were just, you know, you were desperate yeah. to, she did want to get married. She did because that was the expectation of the time. Yeah. And so she was bouncing around. Her mom said, I never even knew she had money problems, which was clear that she did with all this couch surfing she would like borrow money from people and stuff and that also shows a kind of resilience a kind of like no I got I got my shit together I don't need to ask my mom for money right and that com- there's a sort of naivete in that and I think that that's the biggest thing we see in her and that may have been you know the thing that made her a target for whoever chose her is just this sort of like I'm very mature and confident. And in fact, she's really quite, quite young at the, at the heart of it all. She really is. And moving, it's the tale is all this time, you know, moving to Hollywood to be an actress for all intents and purposes. She never acted, which please, I know it's, it's so hard, but I mean, it's that thing, you know, that line from pretty woman, welcome to Hollywood. What's your dream? Everybody's got a dream. Everybody comes there with their, you know, all of these great expectations. And then reality hits you. How am I going to pay rent? She was staying in that sort of like girls hostel nightly thing every once in a while yeah but yeah. you know a, a bulk of her time was spent kind of like they made it seem really tacky and they made it seem really low lifey and I was like the amount of times that all of our friends growing up especially performers when you're in and out of town waiting for a gig waiting for a check it's really really not it, it really is very common and they made her sound kind of like a swindler in that sense like she was trying she was just trying to make it in a in a town and make it on her Hollywood. own yeah she was trying to do it with a father who was quite frankly a giant piece of shit for mm-hmm. what he did to that family with a mother who she clearly didn't want to share her burdens with. I mean, her mom yeah. still had young kids at home, you know, um, and and she she kind of thought she could do it, and 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 I you know I get that, and maybe she was, maybe there was a level of manipulation, right? That's you know like oh I'm so pretty and like I kind of need a place to stay, like okay that doesn't that doesn't make a whole person. Right. Yeah. Like that is just like that's survival well, you know, mode. It seems like I mean, like the statements that are, that were taken from friends and she had a lot. She had a, like a, a, a it seemed like yep. a, a pretty like strong circle of friends. Yeah. They all described her as somebody who's like just really likable and yep. easygoing. And I don't I don't know if they would even have to be manipulative to be like, can I crash at your place type of thing? She was waitressing. Look, she had only been back in L.A. for six months before she was killed. It's not like she yeah. had years to like, you know, pursue this dream. She literally was just kind of getting her bearings. Her friends, or, or a friend did describe her as kind of 
never having rent and always being broke. Um, and I wonder, I mean, like, you know, and, and she was, she was seen in the company soldiers a lot, having a drink mm-hmm. with them, partying with them. And I think, like you said, that was kind of the thing that was happening then. Also, I read, I read about like this entire campaign, a government campaign that would like encourage this and say, you know, these soldiers like need a warm meal and need a need company. And so like, you know, talk to them and share, you know, go, go out with them. And like, there was a lot of encouragement for young women. Yeah. Well, and, and a young, a young, very pretty girl. I mean, you really had no choice but to get married at that, at that time if you wanted to survive. And so what is a drop dead gorgeous woman going to do, but flirt with soldiers who were just back from the war? Like, yes, that is, that makes a lot of sense if you yeah. are programmed to believe I have to get a husband. It's the only yeah. way to be secure. There's no evidence, though, that she ever asked any of those men to pay for her rent or to put her no, up. No, not you know her what I mean? rent. There was, yeah. I think there was one guy who said, oh, I loaned her five bucks a couple times. Like, yeah. no, you're absolutely right. She didn't, yeah. she did not it's even seemed to stay with most of them. She seemed to stay with either friends of friends or there was the woman in San Diego she stayed with for about a month, like... I guess, you know, how awful can she be if she's a guest for a month someplace? I don't think I would do that to anybody. (laughs) Yeah, all the rumors about how many men she had been with, someone was like, she could be seen with five men in a week. I was like, go off, girl. Live your life. You're not... You're not married. You're not tied down. You don't have kids. And so that whole thing about the media, and I think there's a lot of things that is going to come back to the media surrounding this case, just like the perpetuation of rumors and the way that they made her sound and how misogynistic their reporting was. But they love to really paint her as this, I mean, they actually wrote like whore in, yeah, and a in harlot the paper. And, yeah. Well, and and I want to point out too, you were talking about the Examiner and the Examiner was, um, was the main paper. It was like the flagship paper of William Randolph Hearst. And I can't remember when I was, I can't remember if it was this case or another like big LA case. It, it may have been a different one, but Hearst in, in some case in LA around this time specifically said to his reporters, I don't give a shit if you got to make stuff up, sell papers. And as soon as it would start to die that, you know, it would turn back up in the thing. And, and so, uh, you know, whether it was this case or not, obviously Hearst, that was part of the business model. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I, what I want to do next is actually, because I mean, like Sarah, you know, I know how she works as an investigator in terms of like, what are the elements of like a crime she looks at? And so, what I want her to do is walk us now through the crime scene and what that says to her. So a couple of things that really struck me was the fact that, I mean, wh- whoever killed her and left her body there, they were not trying to hide anything. She, mm-hmm. wa- I mean, there was a vacant lot. She could have been carried well into the vacant. So I, and, and she wasn't just dumped and ran. This person took their time, put her right next to the sidewalk, literally like inches from the sidewalk. Um, and I'm like, you know... And the crime scene was otherwise almost spotless. Mm-hmm. Um, there was apparently a tire track that was found close to her body, maybe a bloody smear on the tire track. But like even the lack of blood to me is uh, astonishing. And so, so I want you to talk about that. And also I talk about like, I mean, isn't that kind of what you're dealing with 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 a case at the heart of your podcast? Yes. Yeah, so the the word that comes to mind, it's not, you know, sometimes when we talk about these types of, of situations, 
sadistic sexual homicides, we talk about posing, right? Like the ritual involved and the sort of posing. This to me, this case goes beyond posing and goes to full on presentation. This was to mm-hmm. this person, this was a, a presentation. Like you said, one of the things that jumped out at me, if you were going to pull a body out, you know, yeah, a vacant lot kind of makes some sense if you're going to dump a body and run, but the, where the tire tracks were and where the blood droplets were and stuff were actually, you know, a little ways down from where the body was actually located, which means whoever did that took the additional risk, right? Mm. Rather than just like pulling up, dumping her out the side right of the there. car where you're obscured by the door and stuff and then taking off. They, they walked and carried and took the time to lay her out the way her arms were posed, the way her body was, you know, was angled, the way her legs were were presented that t- was so so specific and so meant I would go so far as to say it's probably it may be meant for a specific person um or at least in in the killer's mind it's meant for a specific person whether or not you know whether or not that person exists what, wait, whatever, what do you but, even mean by that like what do you like, I mean to see it like someone to I, see it Oh, yeah. I mean, like beyond wanting just somebody to see it, right? It seems to me that when a killer is doing that, they have something in their mind. They the, This is a story that they want to tell. And whether it is a story they want to tell to the world or a story that they want to tell to like, a, you know, an imaginary person or a person they are obsessed with and, and have been stalking. Or, you know, when we look at Golden State Killer or even Ted Bundy, we hear these stories about like the girlfriend they never got over, right? Mm-hmm. And and so sometimes uh, you see that as like a driving factor where it's like everything is in, in, in some way sort of show with, with this in mind. And like one of the things that, that struck me, I was like, did they – did they bother to see if anybody in the homes directly in the line of sight of where she was found knew her or knew anybody who behaved strangely, you know, like those people, but, but it, it doesn't seem like they even canvassed the neighborhood because they said they spent weeks trying to find the woman who had called in the, the body. I couldn't to, believe that. I couldn't, couldn't believe find that. this woman. She lived a half a block away. So you clearly yeah. didn't knock and talk. You did not canvas the neighborhood. So they have no way of knowing, like, did, you know, was there some connection to a home, like, directly across the street or nearby or something like that? Um, I, I think when you, when you see a scene, Dr. Burgess talks about this a lot, right? The, the level of ritual and the level Well, can you of, tell folks who Dr. Burgess is? So Dr. Dr. Ann Burgess is for those, for people who saw Mindhunter, she would, the character with Dr. Wendy Carr is based on her. So um, while some, you know, some definitely some great FBI agents went around and conducted interviews with serial killers, um, Dr. Burgess is the one who created the science behind it. She is the one who, who developed the questionnaires. She is the one who interpreted the questionnaires. She really is the, is the true, um, the, the, the brilliance behind the idea of, of criminal profiling or, or criminal psychology as we understand it with serial predators. And so one of the things that Dr. Burgess talks about a lot is, is how long did they spend with the body mm-hmm. after, after the death? To some degree leading up to it, right? Like how sadistic they are will sometimes be reflected in how long they spent sort of torturing this person, whether it's mm-hmm. physical torture or just the emotional torture of knowing that you're probably going to end up dead. And we know in her case that, 
that she she had ligature marks on her on her wrists and her ankles and 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 had been strangled and so we know there was some element of she was held for at least a little while we really have no way of knowing if she was held that whole time because like you said um she she would kind of come and go and it's not like we have texting and so you know six or seven days is really not that long for for nobody to necessarily have seen her um or it's also possible she was held that entire time by somebody from from when she was last seen at the Biltmore um but so then after the the murder is committed how long do they spend with the body afterwards and and in this case they they obviously spent significant time not just with the mutilation but with the 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 cleaning the exsanguination the picking a place to bring it because there's no no place is an accident you know I mean if they put her in a dumpster that's just get rid of the body if you chose that place he chose that place for a reason just the dramatic nature of the pose and how the two parts of her body were in different places I mean it it really is so unbelievable all her mutilation, other than like the gashing on the face and maybe even the cutting, that was all post-mortem, right? I believe so. That's my understanding is yeah. that they, they felt that the mutilation to the face happened pre or perimortem, that that was like a secondary cause of death, that she had so much blood loss from, from the facial wounds. But it's my understanding that the, you know, the cuts in the, in the womb area and all of that stuff. Um, and, and from the, her the, thigh, there's like a chunk the thigh, out of her thigh. Right. And the cuts to the breast and stuff that's done. Somebody took it, it, it long time and care and precision um, in their own mind with that. Yeah. I see. I, I read a lot of conflicting things on those, the cuts on her, the cuts on her face. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of still sort of a, a guess? Is that still like an estimation about when that happened? Because the reason I ask is because somebody had said that that pain and shock of an injury like that could actually send, could actually kill someone, give them a heart attack. Not that she died of a heart attack, but I'm just saying that amount of intense pain. So was that ever decided or is that still up for debate? I think I have always understood it that that was a secondary cause, that it was like um, okay. that they said that the, 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 blood force the trauma. blows to the, yeah, the blunt force mm-hmm. trauma to uh, particularly the front of her head was the primary cause. And then the blood loss from the lacerations. And yeah, they, ca- I mean, I'm not a forensics person. I'm not a criminalist. Um, so I, you know, I can't talk about it in, in super detail, but I do know that like the amount of blood that is produced when a wound is is given, it, you know, is indicative of whether they were alive, how how long yeah. they had been dead. You know what I mean? Like whether they're not the heart still pumping. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I don't know the word I was trying to remember. It's I'm sure I'm going to pronounce this wrong, and I'm going to get 700 DMs. Um, echimosis, echimosis. Never even heard of it. E C C H Y mosis, which is basically that bluish discoloration that I was trying to explain. And that is um, evidence that the internal bleeding was caused to live tissue. So that was what was, mm. but maybe tissue still has oxygen or it's, it appears to be alive even if someone is recently. But the deceased. internal bleeding is probably what happened because of the blunt force trauma. The question is about the external bleeding, like how, you know, because like the chunks of, I mean, like the, the, she, I mean, there were parts of her that were carved off of her body, right? Like so, and 
it is hard to judge because that's not even the crime scene. Like right. the police were never able to identify where she was actually killed and or and she was definitely held for some amount of time because mm-hmm. the ligature marks show that she had been like bound and stuff. I think one of the most gruesome um I mean the whole thing uh, bisecting the body in half yeah. is is it's unfathomable. But I I thought about um the 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 um the slashes on the sides of her mouth mm-hmm. um extending into like this really terrifying like kind of grin. And mm-hmm. I think that's, I don't know, it's one of the scariest aspects of this. Like, that just seems, I mean, I, I, like evil. It's, I mean, like evil in a it, way that I don't understand. It is evil, and it is, it is so deeply personal. And that, mm-hmm. you know, when, when we use the term personal in criminology, it doesn't necessarily mean that the two people knew each other, right? Mm-hmm. It can, but it does mean that it was very specifically about this victim for the killer. And there was something about her that he was filled with tremendous rage, particularly about her femininity and her sexuality. Because in addition to like her beautiful face being completely disfigured, she was also, um, her, her sexual organs were mutilated as well. Like this was a very specific target directed at whoever he saw her as in his world, in his Mm. life, she represented something or he knew her. I mean, that's also possible, right? But she represented something to him that he was just fucking furious about. And like, he was going to show her. There's something about mutilating and hurting someone's face. Do you remember um, Samantha Koenig? She was uh, Israel Keyes' last victim in Alaska. And um, sorry for the graphic explanation, but he sent a picture of her with her. She was actually deceased in her eyelids. Mm, He sewed her eyelids open. There's something very, I guess, personal. Yeah, there's something so... Uh, I, 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 I am really at a loss for words it's, today. It's, it's as masochist, or it's as sadistic as it gets. It sadistic. is, it it is, is sadistic. It's as like, sadistic as, as it gets because it it's is like, like murder plus one. It's like yeah. also this thing that what your, your loved ones might be able to say goodbye to mm-hmm. or that will be your memory. I'm taking that It too. just seems like a lot, some, a lot of hate. A lot of hate. It's a lot of hate. And yeah. now, so here's where, right, where we say, okay, now we have to flip the script and say, what does this say about the killer? And what this says about the killer, generally when we see the need to punish someone's physical appearance Mm -hmm. usually means they are deeply insecure about their own physical appearance, Mm. deeply insecure. They, they hate the world for viewing them the way they think the world views them. Again, sometimes this shit is all in somebody's head, but it is, you know, they, they believe they are perceived a certain way. This person is like the, the epitome of all of that. Um, You know, we, we kind of see it to some degree with, you know, when we talk about incel murders, right? Like Elliot, um, Mm. Elliot Rogers and stuff like that, where it's like, I don't think I can have these women, so I'm going to destroy them. And that's like, for this, you know, for this woman, he had to destroy what he, he felt insecure about in her. Yeah. Or maybe it was someone she had rejected or something that the fragility of the male ego, it's like a little crystal egg. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I, criminal profiling and, and this kind of, I mean, this is Sarah's, you know, like, uh, lane, not mine, but it feels like, I mean, 
here's one of the things that's shocking to me. I mean, there's so many things shocking. Every single aspect shocking is the incredible discipline with which this whole mm -hmm. thing was done, right? This is not a messy, rage-filled crime. This mm -mm. is a very carefully executed crime, leaving no evidence, washing the body. There was They tested her for sperm, nothing there. She had clearly been sexually assaulted. I mean, that's, you know, for sure. But, like, this guy, he... I mean, it's meticulous. It's yeah. meticulous. And, and so I'm like, how that can't, to me, that can't be somebody like she rejected me. I'm going to come for her. This is like somebody I'm like, who's got some practice or something. Like, how do you, right. that can't be your first crime. Can that Absolutely. Well, that's the, yeah, that's the thing. I would be very, very surprised to learn that this was somebody's first crime. Like this mm -hmm. is a very advanced scene. Everything about this. Now we were also dealing with the Keystone cops with the LAPD of 1947. And so maybe even a sloppy scene would not have been, would not have been picked up, but it does seem like everything that we know about it, it was extremely well planned. It's extremely organized. Like when we talk about organized and disorganized killers, it, it doesn't mean that there wasn't to, again, to that person's mind. Cause we have to not think mm. like, like we think, right. We have to think like, so if like she it, didn't when, smile at him, or she did. Uh, she yeah, uh, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, or you know, if, if if she rejected him, that doesn't mean that she wouldn't have gone to this. It just means that like, okay, there was there might have been a period of time through mm. which he 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 simmered on that rejection. And yes, this was like his tenth or whatever. The other thing that's possible is sometimes we see the inability for a rapist a serial rapist who has escalated to homicide, the inability to perform, uh, mm. perform in quotes, because like rape obviously is not a performance, but that is where then we will see object rape and the stuff like the blade rape. And then the, like the rejection of the face, like he's blaming it on her when, in, you know what I mean? So again, this is why like it can be a total stranger, but it's deeply personal. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I totally understand that. Yeah. So there's there's one piece of evidence. I mean, th there were like a couple of bags found. And I think like the, the question, I mean, like, okay, maybe her body was transported in those bags or not. But one of the pieces of evidence that I thought was really fascinating was um, there was these fibers that were found on her body. Mm -hmm. And they turned out to be like these palm tree fibers that are used um, in manufacturing like cheap brushes. Like brushes meaning, and I don't, from from the FBI reports, I can't tell if they mean like a hairbrush or if, which I don't think, but I think they mean like paintbrush type of thing. Or what do you, what do you understand that, Sarah? The thing that I read, um, I did get the impression hairbrush and what that said to me was like, oh shit, this is a cop, oh. <laughs> right? Because like if he had had sex with her and he knows enough to know they're going to look for fibers and hairs because, you know, forensics has come a long way, but they did look for fibers and hairs back then, um, you know, that they might, because they would do like hair type and stuff like that, mm -hmm. um, that he might've thought to like comb out the pubic region you know I mean that was that's just one thing that jumps out but if it's a if it's a paintbrush yeah maybe that's how he lured her in do you want to come model for me how many you know Rodney Alcala how many serials do we know who said mm. pose for me yeah and you know so when I read it I thought it was a brush from her like being cleaned because her uh, body was so clean like a like a body brush because back then they weren't quite as soft as they are now and they were made of like different like animal hairs or some like fibers or something or even like burlap bags like kind of to clean and to pumice so that's what I thought it was because her body was 
completely so clean. clean. We know yeah. it was drained of blood, but there wasn't a spot on her or any semen on her. There was nothing. So I thought her body had literally been scrubbed. That actually, mm-hmm. I mean, that might be the simplest uh, explanation, which as Occam's razor yeah. tells us, is usually the truth. Yeah. Which is funny because I usually go the opposite of Occam's razor. <laughs> I'm like, a hot air balloon came down. <laughs> and then a zombie came out. Not a real zombie, a fake zombie, like the ones at Disneyland. Okay, anyway. Well, actually, I was going to say one more thing about the what what was done to Elizabeth. And that is that um, it wasn't that she was just killed the mutilated post-mortem, maybe, and then cut in half, but... There are signs that she was tortured. For example, um, the, the medical examiner found that in her stomach, it seemed like there was fecal matter or fertilizer, something. I mean, there was definitely like f- something that didn't belong in her stomach was in her stomach, which seems to suggest she might have been f- like forced to eat mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. I mean, like, so it seems like there was like this, like, like just the rage and hate-filled like humiliation that humiliation she, she, yeah right that she was forced to endure first yeah and like the the tic-tac-toe marks is the way the guy described it in the police report there mm-hmm. were like they were not deep cuts they would not mm-hmm. i mean they would have hurt but they would not have wounded but there were like hash marks essentially um on on like parts of her where that you know that feels like what do you what do you make emotional of the, torture yeah what do you make of the fact that that chunk was cut out of her I mean, we know her, sec- her, you know, her sexual organs were um, mutilated, but the chunk was cut out of her thigh. I mean, what what I have read is that friend said that she had a tattoo on her upper right thigh, a red a tattoo of a red rose or something, and the body didn't have one on it. So the assumption is maybe the killer cut out that tattoo. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that uh, they would do that? Well, again, there's something about it that is personal and offensive to him, right? So again, it's part of that. If if he is. Was this an era in which a woman can't get a tattoo? Yeah, that's what I was like. Like, I I mean, I I didn't think it was appropriate for me to have a tattoo until Mm. I got one in like whatever it was, 2011 or something. Like, you know what I mean? Like, so yeah, 1947. No, women were not supposed to have tattoos. That's a, Mm. it's that's more like whore behavior. And so yeah, there is something offensive about that to this guy. Again, everything about her, he is mad at her particular, um, her particular expressions of femininity whatever that is I, I mean, mm-hmm. it's all inadvertent on her part she's just living her life but whoever this person is all of these things are offensive I I had seen differing reports about that tattoo so that's why I you know I've always been careful but yeah there was something there that he decided to carve out yeah I think it was it was all rooted in control and misogyny and taking away her beauty and her femininity and right, it's so. in some sick twisted we we keep referring to this person in the singular. Is do you think there's a world in which the, this could have been more than one person? Because when we get into the suspects, now we're getting to the suspects. There's a theory that this it could have been more than. one Yeah, person. I mean, when we look at, um, you know, I mean, so uh, what that that's called foliage. You when you're talking about like two killers who operate together, um, mm. and they're the the toolbox killers were the names of um, you know two guys who operated in California in the in the early '80s, and there was a lot of really sadistic behavior between the two of them. Typically, you don't see it quite this prolonged and sadistic with multiple people because you really are kind of counting on somebody else being just as messed up as you are. And like, in terms of being willing to go this far, but it does happen. Um, I, I, you know, yeah, I tend to think of it as one person, but it's, it's, 
we've definitely seen this level of of sadism um, exhibited by multiples. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, you know, this is unsolved. Obviously, yeah. we're here because of that. And they basically treated everybody Elizabeth knew as a suspect. Everybody had to be cleared. That included friends or people she had been seen with. I mean, they well, they questioned a lot of people. And Sarah's like, they nope, had- they didn't do enough. <laughs> Well, they they cleared people that, in my opinion, they probably shouldn't have cleared. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, no, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that, like, everybody was considered a suspect. They did not do their due diligence. We'll get to that, obviously, because the Except her dad. Her dad was never a suspect. Mm. Where was her dad? He supposed in L.A., like a mile away, he supposedly has a pretty solid alibi, and I am inclined to think it's probably a good alibi. But I don't know. Like, there's a lot about this, you know. Well, hundreds of people were considered, like, over 60 people confessed, like you said before, men and women. And, but there is, like, you could make several lists. There's several lists online. There's the top 24 suspects. There's the top 20. There's the top 10. Who, if, Rabia, do you have, like, a, a like, a top should we do five? Or, I mean, it, it can go on. With I this, mean, this, I, this we're going to be like a 17-parter. Yeah, no, we, we're definitely going to talk about, like, the, the some of the most, I think, salient ones. But, you know, the father thing to me is, like, again, I keep going back to, like, the meticulousness, is that a word, with with what how with how this was done. Like, I, it just doesn't seem like a one-off to me. I'm like, this guy's a pro. Oh, I completely agree. But I'm those like, two and things her, aren't. Aren't, those aren't mutually exclusive. Her dad had like vanished for ten years. Oh, know? so I mean, yeah, I was gonna say unless her dad is a serial killer, right? Like, I feel like you know, which uh, that's a theory that actually I actually have not read online. But yeah, no, I, I have not either. It, it, I, I will he say does this: have an alibi, but I I was impressed as somebody who deals in uh, a realm with people who falsely confess get wrongly convicted all the time with the fact that the police were able to be like, no, this person's crazy. They did not kill this person. They, they dismiss, they, I mean, they did their due diligence and they, you know, did their like interrogations and, and they cleared like 50 people who were just like off their rocker and who were confessing to something they hadn't done. You posed a question on the Google doc and Mm -hmm. I actually have an answer for it. Do you you want it? Yeah. Give me the answer. How did they know better in the 1940s how to like how to look up, how to assess whether or not there's a false confession than they did in the 1990s where every confession was considered a real confession. So not necessarily how to interpret a false confession as being false, but how many, like you can usually tell like with this woman, right? Like she came forward. The first thing she did was tell the press and then she told the police, right? So there was, and she only had details that were known in the papers and stuff like that. So you can usually, you would hope that most cops, even crappy ones would be able to write those off. But the, the primary difference is not so much in the, in those like giant, weird, crazy people, false confessions as how do we end up with false confessions? Like with Jason Carroll. Right. And the answer to that question is what was developed in the late forties and early fifties, the read technique, the read technique. Yeah. And, and that changed the face of interview. And that's how we ended up with, with quite frankly, so many, uh, false confessions that just started piling up after that. And it got, you know, it was always pretty brutal back then. There were a lot of people beaten into confessions, even in the, you know, 30s and 40s. But um, it certainly, it became a lot more manipulative uh, once Reed came onto the scene. So I um, was kind of gobsmacked when I read that Woody, uh, sorry, that, yeah, that, that Woodrow <laughs> yeah. Guthrie, who wrote This Land is Your Land, 
was considered a serious suspect at one time. But he was a suspect because he basically violated, what was it, the Comstock Act? Like he was sending supposedly pornographic material through the, the mail. And that was <laughs> yes. like why He they, was stalking they, this like, woman. Right. He had, yes, he had been stalking. And then they said they pulled him in on the federal crime of like sending pornography through the mail. So, but, and then they said. I love it when they do that. Yeah. He was cleared. uh, He was cleared because he was not in the area at the time. You know what I mean? Like he was not even in the state or anything. So they were able to clear him. I didn't know. I just always like it when they get a backdoor where they get like a, oh, I like it when they backdoor. Okay. I'll be, I'll be. Hearing yep. that on repeat from, hi, guys. No, <laughs> I like holes and backdoors. Exactly. Well, no, like, you know, they got Al Capone on tax evasion. Yeah. You know, like, I love those things when they, they're like, that's the thing we can get them in on. But the suspect list, though, you know, uh, the, the main suspect list reads um, Maurice Clement, Salvador Torres Vera, Marvin Margolis, Glenn Wolf. <laughs> this says uh, a Chicago police officer. But there are some main ones that keep coming up that a lot of people come back to. There are podcasts about it. Who is your number one person you want to talk about, Sarah? Actually, no, wait. Scratch that. Who is the person that comes up in the conversation that you're like, why is this person coming up? This is such a hard no, but their name keeps coming up because there are several of them. I mean, the one that comes up that I'm just like, no, stop that, um, is Ed Edwards, who was a serial killer, Mm -hmm. um, but he, like, he was a bad dude, he did horrible things, but he is somebody who's, and we've had a few of these, and we're probably going to talk about one, um, where this person's adult child later came forward and said, I believe my my father did this. Mm-hmm. Now, he did yeah. not just say that he did Dahlia, in addition to the crimes that, that he's known for. They have attributed everything from um, Black Dahlia to JonBenet Ramsey um, and yeah. the Zodiac Killer to, you know, to this one person. and Actually, and Lacey Peterson. And Lacey Peterson. Oh my God, yeah. I forgot about Lacey, my yeah. bad. And and that is always like, you want to talk about a pet peeve of, of mine, this idea that like we can take all of these horrible cases and ascribe them to only a few people. That I happens with Israel Keys too. It happens Maura with Israel Murray, Keys. Maura like yeah, that happens all the time. It's a very easy way to, to make your brain go to the scariest place and solve it. Great, it was Israel Keys and he's gone, you know. Exactly, and I think it gives people, I mean like true crime gets blamed all the time for making women afraid all the time i think if you are thinking that there are like five people who have committed all the famous serial murders <laughs> then you are walking around with a false sense of security yeah um because there are a lot more of them sarah's like there's serial killers everywhere they're just there everywhere kind of are uh, yeah, you know are. um look i mean like so there's I so mean, many people have never heard of you right? know at the, at the top of the episode you talked about we talked about why this case was so notorious and and had such a like the memory of it just won't you know people are obsessed with it and you said because it was so horrific but you know, there. I mean, I remember we talked about possible suspects, and you brought up the Cleveland torso murders, and I said, "What?" I mean, yeah. like, so so that was a thing. Apparently, seven uh, San Diego women had been like murdered and and uh, mutilated, like in the in the years leading up to it. Very shortly after um, uh, Elizabeth's uh, murder, there was the the killing of um, the red lipstick murder, as it is dubbed, of uh, Jean French, and she was a naked corpse found in a vacant lot in L.A. I mean, like literally. 
I think like the next month, right after. Yeah, after, that uh, I mean that one feels awfully close, doesn't it? You know what yeah. I mean? Like that's yeah. the, that's the thing is I think you know, and on those San Diego ones, I looked through those, and some of them to me don't even feel like they're connected to each other necessarily. Like they're they're just too far afield. I mean, mm. people will some of these guys work very chaotically. You know, you look at like uh, Richard Ramirez or um, even Bundy, right? Where they use all these different methods and they, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? They kind of like vary around. So you can't, and they, they'll vary in who they choose. Israel Keys is one where like, there's just no way to identify who he's going to pick. But with this one, because it's so specific and the signature is so specific, the MO would almost have to match you like that. It, you know what I mm. mean? So, so the San Diego one, but there are a couple in there that I'm like, Oh, that feels like that, that those might be connected to each other and could be connected to this one. Honestly, if we're talking though about the, the, the far afield ones, the Cleveland torso killer is the one that for me rings the closest as being a like, okay, I know I just said that, that we can't connect all of these serials to each other. And this is one in Cleveland and this is in LA, but this guy he's unsolved, but this particular killer, the cases were linked to other cases in Pennsylvania, upstate New York, and then Dahlia. And they, they do really look similar, not just in the presentation, but in like, don't any of those cases have like DNA somewhere in a vault that we can like now use with genetic genealogy. I don't understand the Cleveland torso murders. I keep asking about that. Like why there's so much evidence left on there. I'm pretty sure there's evidence left with, with Dahlia. Like, why are we not testing for touch DNA? Maybe it's degraded, but maybe it's not, you know? I mean, that was the, the, Cleveland torso killers, which that by the way, we're not giving that a fancy name. That, that no. is an unidentified person. We we don't know who that is. And they it's twelve people officially. Thirteen. 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 Okay. That they have linked to it. And that was in, in the nineteen thirties. But would it, it be fair to say, by both of your estimations, that this had to have been done by someone with some medical training because nope. of the you don't think that because of the precision mm. of the that, cutting. that was like kind of a leading theory of of the investigators always right what about the yep. draining of the blood because that, uh, that is very very specific which like uh, an embalmer can do why do you say no because I thought that was the thing I was how like well you, you have to be dealing with a highly sophisticated how do you even person. drain blood out of an entire body it's a lot of blood. Yeah. Well, people who do it who embalm, right? They and people who do it who hunt. <laughs> if you've oh. ever gone deer hunting, you have exsanguinated a creature. Have um, you deer hunted, Sarah? I have not, but my daughter's father, my my ex-husband from from many moons ago is an is a very like very ethical avid hunter. He literally lives in a in a forest. Um he consumes all his meat. I don't want to like have PETA coming after me or whatever. Yeah. No, um, and I so I, I know the process from the time, you know, that we were together. I know what that what what that entails. But even that even that being so said. Tell, yeah, tell me why because I was really on that it yeah. had to be a medical professional. So tell me why that's that's Michigas and fake So news. I I'm I'm grinning like crazy over here because every mutilation murder I have ever seen, including ones that I have participated in the investigation in some capacity or another, at some point the theory is it has to be a medical doctor, a medical student, or a butcher. That is the other one that always mm-hmm. comes up, right? And they always say like, oh, because of the precision and because of X and because of Y. And I have now 
again, there are there are two good doctor suspects for this case, including the lead suspect in the Cleveland Torso murders. Um, and this one, of course, I'm sure we'll talk about the other one. Um, but in cases where we have then later identified the killer, it has never been a doctor, even in mm. these ones where everybody was like positive. And, yeah. you know, p- part of so my... Precise. It's so precise. And like, you know, my origin story, Danny Rowling, the Gainesville student murders, um, he, you know, I was 15 the summer that happened. And the lead suspect for months and months and months was a pre-med student named Ed Humphreys. And part of that, the reason that was given to us, I mean, he, he did a lot to make himself a suspect up to and including saying, I'm pretty sure I have information about the cases that that wasn't helping him any, but Part of the explanation that I remember reading in the newspaper was that a particular muscle had been carved out of one of the victim's calves, and it was so specific and so perfect that it could only be in a spot that somebody with a scalpel who knew anatomy would be able to do it. Danny Rowling didn't know shit. And Mm. like the guy who ultimately, you know, turned out to be the killer, it, it, it doesn't have to be that. And and with this one in particular, the thing that everybody attributes that to, and here's where I'm going to say the word wrong, uh, hemicorporectomy, right, yeah, is the, yeah. so where she was bisected. All right, two things. If you as a layperson were going to, sorry to be crass, but carve a body in half, wouldn't you just do it at the belly button or right above mm-hmm. the belly button? Like, that's where mm-hmm. this is. The other thing is everybody attributes this because of one particular doctor and they're saying like, oh, he had this training and stuff. You know, maybe there's information out there that I have not been able to find. The only thing I can find, and according to the National Institutes of Health, the United States government's entire medical history, that procedure was not developed until 1951. The Mm hemicorporectomy thing. Yeah, it was presented at a medical conference in 1951 and and that was the first time it makes it into the like medical lexicon. Well, I think the re I mean, one of the reasons that it stood out was, um, well, that means that the killer knew how to do it before even doctors were trained in how to do it because it was done in a way where it's the, it was the only point at which the body could have been severed into pieces without breaking any bone, apparently. So it was that it seemed like it was a pretty precise location, but that takes us to who I think is, it seems like one of the most popular suspects. I don't know mm-hmm. if that's the right mm-hmm. term. And that is, um, the doctor, Dr. George Hodel. And can we talk yep. a little bit about him? Because we, I feel like you can't talk about this case and not talk about this guy. Totally agree. Totally agree. Okay. I think, you know, I always want to say at the outset, I do not dismiss Hodel. He said a lot of incriminating things. He absolutely sexually assaulted his daughter. He most likely murdered his own secretary because she was going to um, turn him in for, for fraud. He is a really, really awful human being. It seems like he probably you know, was committing incest against numerous victims within his own family. Mm. However, (laughs) there is no link between them. And the only reason, I mean, that I have seen, again, this is a rabbit hole. There are, you know, there are plenty of things that I don't know about this case. But anything I have ever seen, the reason he was looked at was because he ran an STD clinic for the city of Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And the assumption was if she was as big a slut as we think she is, she must have been treated for an STD at some point, and therefore she would have encountered him. But Um, he also had a reputation. He had a reputation, girl. It wasn't like... Oh, no, he's awful. He's awful. I'm not saying he wasn't, but like... Did the authorities Otherwise, know that reputation? They must have known. They're like, it's not just that he runs his clinic. This guy, like, is, absolutely. is problematic. Yeah. But 
how, like, what is the link between them? There is no link between Mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and, you know, some of the evidence that, again, that people cite is this stuff with the surgery. They're like, oh, he knew how to do this surgery years earlier. And I'm kind of like, how? No, it's surgery wasn't developed at that point. Um, now, again, that could be wrong. I, I, I'm definitely not an expert in this case, but it also, you know, one of the things cited is like the removal, the excising of her breast. Well, you can see the breast there. So unless somebody's just misusing the term excising, you can see it in the photographs, you know, the unfortunate right. photographs. Like, that like part of it's been removed. Yeah. It's, it's been peeled which sounds yeah. terrible but it's not taken completely off of her body off. right it's weird like when you read the reports like there are reports in the fbi files where it's like the breast has been removed and then in other places but like you said you can actually see the photograph so it's like a little it confusing yeah unless the, the that person writing the report doesn't know what a breast looks like i don't even know how to yeah. understand or that. was it completely cut off and then placed back on that's you know i mean like for the and that's what we're seeing in the photo maybe it's, it's really yeah. it's hard to know it's really hard to know. The person who's convinced that it's de- it was definitely Dr. George Hodel is his son, Steve Hodel, mm-hmm. who is a retired a police officer, right? He's a retired homicide detective. Yeah, a which I, I, yeah, I lend a lot of credence to. Yeah. And listen, you can find um, his, his, he, oh, if you find, you want a rabbit hole, go to his website. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, his, SteveHodel.com. Holy moly. There is a lot there. I think he's there. three or four books, you know. Yes, yes. He's convinced for lots of different reasons. Some of the, some of the things, like it all started where he was going through his dad's stuff and he found a picture of a woman that looked all, to him an awful lot like uh, Elizabeth Short. And then from there, it just kind of kept going. Then he found receipts for cement bags. And then he did handwriting comparison. We even talk about like the handwriting, the letters, the crazy stuff. I mean, oh, God. yeah, yeah. yeah. The, letters. Yeah, the LAPD got like, you know, they got like a package that had those literally this, what you see in the movies, the serial killer cut out letters from <laughs> magazines or whatever in, in a letter and, cl- and many of her personal items, which is interesting because mm-hmm. like they got a package with all these personal items of hers, including her birth yeah. certificate and a diary and all this stuff. I would bet um, you dollars to Donuts reporters bought that from her roommates or bought probably. that from somebody. Yeah. yeah, probably. One of the reasons, actually, that that diary of hers, which is, or when I say diary, I don't mean like a journal. I mean like the address way people book, use kind of an yeah, address yeah. book. Yeah, yeah. Um, is it did have the name of me, like dozens of men and numbers, and I think that was one another reason that the rumors around her started that she was just like having like a lot of different relationships. Now that guy though, the guy whose name is actually embossed on the address book, who right. It was like his property, but he, she was staying with him through a friend. And so he, she, he gave it to her or whatever. And she used it as her address book was a guy named Mark Hansen. And that is a guy who I'm not, not, we're not talking Chris Hansen. Um, this is a guy who had apparently made multiple overtures on her, who, according to her friends, she had not only, you know, declined his advances, But this was the guy who her friends told the police, you need to really look at him. Mm. We were afraid of him. She was afraid of him. But she Um, was staying with him. She said briefly, this was another one. And it wasn't like she knew him through a friend. It was one of these, like she needed a place to stay and a friend. And he, he had multiple people staying at his house. He was my understanding fairly well off. It was a great big house with lots of rooms. Okay. Okay. Well, there's also, which I mean, like, Dr. Hodel became a serious enough suspect that he got bugged. Yep. His con- his his telephone and I think his residence maybe was a bugged. And there is a part of a one of the transcripts I'm like, well, this seems a little incriminating in which Hodel is talking to somebody and he says 
Um, supposing I supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia. They couldn't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary anymore because she's dead. Yeah, that's the one that gets me too, where I just keep coming back and I'm like, mm, I, you know, I know we always say like, oh, I would never say this. I would never confess. And you don't know all that stuff. But like, what is the psychology behind using the term? They can't prove it now. Yeah. Without it meaning exactly what it sounds like. That is, yeah, that is the one I always come back to too, where I'm like, I could never dismiss this guy. Yeah. Can't be dismissed. Um, but, but then, I mean, I, I think the, the, the thing about, and like you said, he is um, a retired homicide detective, Steve Hadell. But then he does seem to take it further than that. He's like, not only did he kill the black dog, he's also the Zodiac killer. My dad's a Zodiac killer. Uh-huh. And so that's where, but I think he's apparently still compiling evidence to that effect. I don't know. That That's my why understanding. Does, why does everyone want to be the Zodiac? Because that's <laughs> the other one. Why does everybody want to be the son of the Zodiac? That's what always everybody happens. Everybody wants to be like, also, you know what? Let's throw the Zodiac in there too. It always comes back so, to the Zodiac. Always. So I'm going to, I'm going to make a liar out of myself when I'm like, nah, I don't think it was a doctor. But Rabia, and if you look at the Google Doc that you had shared with me, right? Mm-hmm. So one of the, I, I at the very bottom of the Google Doc, I added a photo that was pulled out of the FBI files, oh, and yeah. somebody sent an anonymous letter to the FBI, and it said, "If you want to find the Black Dahlia killer, look for this guy." And there's a drawing. This person is quite a good drawing. So well, but look who's on the right. That's the Cleveland. That's the main suspect in the Cleveland Torso Killers, oh, who looks shit. exactly like Hodel. It's crazy. To be fair, all the men in the 30s and 40s kind of look <laughs> they do like kind miscellaneous. Of, I mean, you should, look, you should look at this document. You guys put this up on Facebook. Like, it is bananas how much mm. both of these men look like each other and look like this drawing. I think yeah. they're all a little bit related. When Daisy Egan <laughs> was doing her stuff on the Alcatraz and she was talking about all the men in Alcatraz, I was like, are they all brothers? Yeah. They, yeah. All, they all kind of just have a plain sort of face. I am... Um, I really, really went in deep with George Hodel again. What is wrong with me? Well, I don't sounds, know. That sounds <laughs> awful. But everything he, a lot of people will just say he's just a creepy dude. I'm like, mm, oh, he's beyond no. creepy. He's, he's, he's beyond, beyond creepy. awful. Creepy. He's yeah. a he's a serial sexual assaulter. There's no yeah. doubt about that. There's no I, doubt about that. I think if you are mentally capable to sexually assault your daughter, you absolutely can take a life. Because basically that is like taking someone's life, taking someone's innocence. Absolutely. You're capable of it. But we do like we do also know that these are are kind of like two different often, not always, two different types of of offenders. Right. So it doesn't one does not necessarily follow the other. Sure. But I do think that sexual assault is really about control. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think this murderer was very, very much into the controlling, the the dramatic nature of this murder. It seemed like very, very much a control freak as well. Oh, absolutely. And and we will always see they escalate from, from usually from some type of domestic violence, right? Like either mm-hmm. within their own home growing up or then in a, in a relationship, then they escalate to sexual violence and then they escalate to homicide. Like, yeah, of course, that's just, that's a, a rung on the ladder for these guys. Look, I, I if you guys want to go down the, the rabbit hole of, of Dr. George Hodel, there is a lot there. Again, you can find um, a lot of it. You know, Steve Hodel has written, I think, probably thousands of pages. And like, yeah. I think this is his entire life is to try to prove this. But, you know, you said something earlier, um, which I, I think actually might not be 
right. And that is that there there must be some evidence in this case that could be like touch DNA, but what could have been? Like the cement bag? Like there's two bags, right, that were found near her body. Nothing on the body. I mean, the body's gone anyway, obviously. The, you know, she's yeah. been buried and gone. I mean, I don't know if she was buried or cremated, but that body's, there's nothing there. There's no clothing that was found. There's no personal oh, no, items. Her- well, her shoes, her they shoes and the, her purse, the purse were, the were they were yeah. found. Yeah, her, oh, I didn't her, know one that. of her shoes and her purse were found. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. A picture, Rabia, it's a it's of high. It was really cute too. It was a black suede pump. It was really yeah. Cute. And the um, purse is yeah is it's on point. Um, but the you know you're you're absolutely right. It is it is pretty unlikely. But mm. also, this is a police agency that their budget is in billions with a B. So, like, mm. what's a few thousand dollars to throw at some testing? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, let me ask you this, because uh, we, we've had you on for a while now. I mean, like, we, we're going into our second, at the end of our second hour. And so I want to ask you, do you do you think this case can ever actually be solved? Um, honestly, no. I, 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 mm. think, I think it's entirely possible that they interviewed the killer at some point in the process and may have dismissed them too early. We didn't, you know, I don't, I don't want to like keep going at this obviously because everybody has their pet theories, but there was, um, there was a guy, I think Patrick O'Reilly was his name who they briefly interviewed. He had a history of escalating sexual violence and he nearly um, beat a woman to death who he was on a date with. He abducted her, took her to a hotel and beat her nearly to death. And he specifically said, no, it was, it was enjoyable to watch her in this. And so like, this was a guy who knew Elizabeth and they did not, they did not really follow that through. I also am not sure that Red Manley should be. You know what I mean? We're we're just we didn't taking, talk about him. Yeah, the I mean, guy that was she her was boyfriend. Seen with that, well, yeah. that was a guy she had dated for a couple of days. But you know, right. he he she he was alibi by his one. wife, right? He was yeah, married, alibi yeah, by his wife. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, you know, I just feel like he. But he she was, also was seen in the hotel after he dropped her off. He said he dropped her off the Biltmore, and then she was seen by witness in the hotel without him. Was she? Because, yeah. like, I, I don't know. Like, I've seen stuff that says they saw her at a cafe a couple of blocks away about an hour later. Um, you know, but I don't know how reliable those are because there was also a guy who came forward and said, I absolutely 100% saw her on the, like, whatever it was, the 13th or 14th. She bought a train ticket here, blah, blah, mm. blah. And then a woman came forward and said, no, that was me. Yeah. And they, they uh, went to the yeah. train station with her, and he he was like, oh, my bad. Yeah. You're right. It wasn't her. And so, you know, we all know that eyewitness testimony is the least reliable. Yeah. So we really have no proof of life from her mm. after she's with Red Manly. Not even mm. at the hotel. Oh, boy. Um, I don't know. I guess we're not solving a mystery this episode. I know. <laughs> I'm sorry. I feel like I did not do my job. No, it no. Is, it is a rabbit hole. I, that's why when... When Rafia told me you wanted to cover this, I was like, no, uh, I don't I want it so much. Okay, I'm but. Sorry. And you guys moderating your Facebook page, I'm sure it's going to be blowing up with like, do you know this? Do you know this? Do you oh, know this? Oh, it's so much. I mean, that we, yeah. we get that all the time. We barely like, scratched we, the surface of this case, to be to be, to be be clear. Barely scratched the surface. Like in, in We'll our- have to have another, we'll have to have, our couple more things is going to be another hour and a half long episode. But if you had to throw some cuffs on somebody, their ghost, right now, you had to, who would it be? I don't know. I've spent too much time working with Rabia to throw cuffs on even a ghost that I'm not 100% Sarah's sure Sarah's so about. cautious. She's a great, she's a great <laughs> investigator. And she, she will not, 
Listen, I there, promise she, you they don't listen to the they don't listen to the show. I promise. <laughs> you can't get any defamation charges. I want to go back and spend a lot more time with Red Manley and mm. I want to spend time investigating Patrick O'Reilly um, mm. and 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 I you know the, the, I, I think those two are certainly are certainly yeah. worth spending some time with. And I, I want to know, like, you know, what ac- what kind of places do these people have access to? They had to have a place yes, to keep they her had to have and a place kill her, her and drain and her, her and wash mm-hmm. her. So I'm like, Hodel seems like a good one for. I mean, this man's got all kinds of like medical, you know, like a like. I know you yep. said it doesn't. That's what I mean. It's a no, doctor, no, it, but yeah, it doesn't that, mean necessarily. But it also yeah. doesn't mean it's not. And and it's the same thing. So Francis Sweeney is the doctor who's the you know the uh, Elliot Ness was positive that Francis Sweeney was the Cleveland Torso killer, mm-hmm. and um and and Sweeney was also not only a doctor but like worked most of the time in a morgue that was like in the neighborhood where the bulk of the Cleveland Torso killings were happening, and he worked at night. And so like, mm-hmm. what better time to exsanguinate to dismember to wash bodies and then to yeah. put them places, you know. Yeah. I do, before we leave, I do want to talk about something that Sarah and I were talking about before you popped on, Rabia. Rabia was having technical difficulties today, poor thing. I do, this is a case that really, and I, and I know Sarah will um, agree with me, it upsets me because I do feel like so many people know this case and just it's kind of like an earworm, like you've heard it before, but nobody knows who Elizabeth Short is. And we spoke about that briefly in the Amanda Knox episode, the Meredith Kircher episode, because if you ask someone who is Meredith Kircher, they don't know. And if you say who's Amanda Knox, they most certainly know. So I do think there is a part of me that's really sad that this story of this young girl trying to find herself, trying to start a career, trying to fall in love, trying to do all the things that we all want to do in our life. She was beautiful. She was just trying to make her way. And she was a human and she had family. And she's kind of left with this Mm -hmm. little cute name. Oh, the Black Doll. Well, her name was Elizabeth Short. And she was suffered a a horrible horrible death. I actually saw someone with the her her deceased face tattooed on their arm. I've oh seen my that. god. Yeah. I've yeah. seen that a lot. It's awful. Because it does it seems like it's from a movie and it's not a movie. It was a girl and and the amount that she must have suffered, it, it she did not die die quickly. And that is really sad. And I think that her name is lost in so many times with all these, you know, the the Night Stalker and all these names that are coined for these people. I think the bad guys should be called, you know, Dickweed Kills a Lot. And I think that the victims should always be called by name. I do understand it. And I understand I understand it from a a media standpoint, but my heart hurts when I hear that. Well, and I think we know all we need to know about the way the case was handled. Rabia, you started this out saying like, why did this, you know, why did this go south so bad? Why did the the police have perceptions that then the public had? If you go through the FBI files, which you can, any almost anybody can get them now. You can download them from different sites. Sarah, we need to, you need to come back and we need to record our Patreon. I don't I, 
it's it is truly truly just the surface. I don't know what we're gonna yeah. do. Yeah, uh, but yeah. I want I want before you dip out. I want folks to know where they can find you. You did mention a couple times you do these amazing live shows, which I have gone to a couple of them. They're so 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 good. Sarah, you're an incredible presenter. You're incre- listen and for for folks who have not yet heard, why can't we talk about Amanda's mom? I remember when I listened to the first episode, and what I texted Sarah. I said this is the best written research she said that script, to me she yeah mm-hmm. scripted narrated podcast episode i have ever heard and i listen to a lot of podcasts and it is brilliant you are brilliant go to her shows where can they find you where can they find information about what you're doing that is very kind thank you um the 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 podcast is why can't we talk about amanda's mom and you can get it wherever you get your podcast so mm-hmm. all of all of the different platforms um you can find me primarily these days on social media i'm hanging out on instagram and it's mm-hmm. just my name backwards kaylin sarah um and i will you know as i'm allowed to i post case updates when i have them or when we're allowed to speak about stuff i can say it's ongoing um but you can also, if you follow me on Instagram, then you will get um, notices for when I'm going to be doing live events in your area. I do them all over the country. They're, um, they're, they're, I like to think of them as fun and educational. Like I, I make people eat broccoli. You're going to learn something, but I pour cheese all over it. So, um, And I typically Amazing. do them in breweries and bars. So everybody gets a little bit lit and we talk about criminal psychology and we talk about historical cases and um, and it's it's a lot of fun. So They're so good. They're so and good. Her merch is great too. Love your merch. Oh, nice. And for those of you who missed our live with Sarah, she absolutely disagreed with Rabia and I about the intruder theory. So go back to our live, which oh, is God. on our grid about the JonBenet Ramsey uh, case. Well, we should also do a couple more things about that. We should record that for the Patreon with yeah. you because that you was were a great such chat. a masochist. Like you were just inviting like all the controversy right back in. Do you want to talk about Scott Peterson again? Let's. Talk That's the one thing she won't. Never. I do. I do. Never. I do. She wants. Sarah, we love you. We'll definitely have some more chats with you on the Patreon. And I know that you are probably our most informed guest, which I'm sure our listeners are going to absolutely love. Yeah. And if you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to us on SpeakPipe, www.speakpipe.com slash solve the case. You can actually also direct questions to Sarah because I'll bet if we twist her arm, she will answer it for you Mm -hmm. on our Patreon. And you can find us on all platforms, Rabia and Ellen. Where can they find you, Rabia? Uh, I am on Instagram at Rabia Squared 2 and on Twitter at Rabia Squared. Like Sarah, I'm barely on Twitter. It's really hurtful now. It's just really hard to be there. And you guys really take a look at Rabia's socials because she just figured out how to put a link on her stories. Shut up. And I'm just really, really proud of her. You know what? I, I, when I sent that to Ellen, she didn't even respond to like give me any affirmation or pat on the back. Nothing. I I got nothing. You, you are too accomplished, Rabia. You don't need such, such like silly praise from me. We are so happy that you have joined us for this conversation. Please join our Facebook group for more because I'm sure there'll be lots coming up about this case. And Sarah's there. Sarah's in the Facebook group. So people can find you there too. I am a fan of the show. Friend of the show. Friend of the podcast. We love you. Heck yeah. And ask her all of her questions. And until then, we'll see you soon. Bye, guys. Bye, Sarah. Enjoy your fall. Bye. Thank you. I will. All right. Good night.